0: All right, we're going to transition right now into the book of Galatians. If you guys are new here, uh, typically what we do on Sunday mornings is we go through books of the Bible and currently we've uh, started a book series going through the book of Galatians and right now we're on chapter 5 as we've been kind of going through this book verse by verse. And so what I want to do right now is I want to actually uh, read through the passage that we're going to be taking a look at and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to get to work on this larger passage, a lot of great stuff that Paul is talking about. Um, But let's go ahead and read. We're going to pick it up this morning right around chapter 5, verse 7, going on to about verse 12. And then like I said, I'll pray and then we'll get to work on this. Paul starts off by saying, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if, brothers, I still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you will emasculate themselves. We'll get to that in a second. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would help us to understand your word, even the tough parts, things that don't make a lot of sense to us. Even the parts that may seem a little bit disjointed, we pray, God, for great wisdom to understand what these things are, to understand how that we can apply them, and somehow be able to move from just merely theoretics to move from just mere understanding, cognitive, to a sense of affection, where our hearts will be like a fire that gets stoked in the flame of our love, God, the flame of our hearts would be even more set on fire for you, God, that we would love you with all of our heart mind, soul, strength, and might because of what Jesus did for us, that we would understand that and live according to that. So we need your spirit to be able to do that in our lives. We pray and we ask that you do that even now. We agree together and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preface this morning by basically saying that a lot of times Christianity, unfortunately, gets identified as being mainly about prepositions, things that you're supposed to do, things that you're supposed to fall in line to follow, Uh, things that you're supposed to line up and do. Uh, But Christianity is not just merely about prepositional truth, but at the end of the day, Christianity is really about a person. It's about a relationship. It's not about nearly necessarily your relation to theoretics and truth and concept, but it's more so in terms of your relationship to Jesus, what Jesus has done for you. In other words, God saved you to bring you into a relationship. Jesus came into this world not to just give you a creed, not to just merely give you a doctrinal thesis. Not to just merely give you some sort of orthodox views. And that's about it. It's not it. Christ came. Now it's, it does involve that. It's not less than that. But it's far more than that. Because in reality Christianity is about Christ doing something for us. In order to bring us into a right relationship with himself. With the Father. Uh, Paul actually st- said this in chapter 5 verse 1. Where he said it's for freedom's sake. That Christ set us free. So Paul actually affixes a purpose statement to the life and the ministry in the, of Jesus Christ. His life, purpose, and ministry was all about coming to set you and I free. Which presupposes the fact that you and I, by nature, are not free. We're not free. We, we looked at this really in depth last week as to what does freedom And what does bondage or slavery really imply? What does it entail? What does it talk about? So if you guys weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go check out the message online. It's free. Download it. Listen to it. But the reality is that we are not by nature free. We by nature are usually always making choices that will get us bound up. In reality, by nature, the desires, the desires of our heart. Because sometimes we think that true freedom is being able to do what I want to do. But that's not even true, because in reality, even our understanding, our thinking, our thoughts, our desires are contradictory. I'll give you an example, a very simple one, all right? All of us in this room, I'm certain, want to live really old. We want to have long-lasting lives, right? But at the end of the day, all of us, I would imagine, unless you're lying, all of us want to eat a lot of food, just indulge in any type of food we want. Now, the reality is that's conflicting. You can't just eat whatever you want and live for as long as you want. You just can't. It's conflicting. Because either you will eat whatever you want and get grossly overweight and you will die young. Or you, you just you, they're conflicting ideas, conflicting notions. All right? So the point of the matter is, you're really not free. You're not even free to live out what you really want. Because at the end of the day, even though we want to live for a long time, we want to be able to enjoy all the things that we have in this life, even though we may want to live forever, we just can't live forever. We're bound in this body, and we're bound one day to die. We even talk about it in language of slavery. Bound. That's what slavery means. You're bound to something. You can't break the chains. You can't alter the course. You can't change the direction. You're bound. Jesus came to set us free. To set us free from contradictory notions that will lead to death. To set us free from one day this body that actually is bound to die. To actually give us a new body that is bound to never die. That's why Paul would say this mortality one day will take on immortality. It's all part of what the gospel plan was. Was to redeem that which was lost or broken... As a result of our forefathers. Abraham. Abraham uh, Adam and his wife Eve. That led into this course of brokenness. Throughout the rest of history. Which Jesus came to redeem and restore. But the point that I would make is that. Is that Christianity like I said. Is really at the end of the day. Not just merely about propositional truth. What you need to do. How you need to live. It's really about a person. But because it's about a person. Because we are in a relationship with a person. That it's possible to into a place whereby you're not trusting in that person anymore. It's possible to break that thing. Now, I'm not in any way entertaining. You can lose your salvation. I'm not. I don't believe that. And that's a whole other subject. I'm not going to go into that right now. But the point that I'm making is that in a relationship with Jesus, it's possible to sort of lose your way, start wandering down false paths that are not leading us into relationship with Christ and thus leading us into the true freedom that Christ offers us. And that's what Paul is really concerned about. This is a group of people that started out strong. They started out in right relationship with Christ. And as time went on, they basically wandered from Christ by falling back into a form of religious legalism. Paul's saying, I'm baffled by you guys. It doesn't make any sense what you're doing. You guys were once slaves to paganism. Jesus set you free to be in right relationship to him. Now you're falling back into another form of Religious slavery? Paul's like, it doesn't make any sense what you guys are doing. So the reality is, what we want to take a look at here today is Paul is not going to sort of give us, in this paragraph, a series of really what looks to be and appears to be very disjointed concepts. Just in this one paragraph, there's at least five different types of motifs or concepts that Paul's going through. It's kind of like sitting down. Watching television with a guy who's ADD and who's hopped up on caffeine. Just constantly changing the channel. Looking at football, then jumps to Oprah, then jumps to the news, then jumps to a movie, then back to football. And just constantly going through the rotation of channels over and over and over again. But this is what Paul does in this, in this paragraph right here. Completely changes up metaphors at least five different times. Possibly, my guess is this, is that Paul's trying to really capture the attention of his readers So I don't don't want you to be lost, so I'm going to shift it up a little bit. I'm going to jump metaphors here to try to get you back on track just so that you can see what's happening here and how serious it is to walk away, not just from propositional truth, but to walk away from a person, to walk away from this right relationship with Christ in which he laid his life down in order to bring you into. So with that, there's at least five different things that he points out in terms of these Different scenes. Uh, the first one he talks about is a race, a courtroom. Then he moves into a kitchen. Then he talks about the crucifixion. He's going to go into a bris. A bris is basically a ceremony that has to do with circumcision. And um, so we'll get to that in a 2nd I'll explain what all that means um, in a moment. But the first thing he talks about is a race. In verse 7 he says it like this. You are, one, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the first thing that Paul identifies is the fact is that this group of people started off Running in the right relationship with Christ, they were following after God, they had right relationship with each other, because that's what Jesus does when you're in right relationship with him, when the gospel is actually making an inroad in your life, impacting you, you actually have different, uh, it affects the way that you uh, relate with other people. So Christianity not only affects you on a vertical level, but also affects you on a horizontal level. And so what had happened was these people started out in, on a vertical level, they were in right relationship with God. And the right relationship that sort of translated into their lives with God was joy. That's what happens. You know, when, when, when you are made right with God, the first really specific result that happens to your heart is you become joyful. God changes you. He changes your fundamental core of who you are. He changes the fundamental direction of your life. And therefore, the result of that is joy. Because what happens is sin takes away joy funny thing is is that sin lies and it deceives us and it says sin is pleasurable, but we often forget the last section of that phrase, it's pleasurable for only a season. And usually when the season is over or the expiration date finally comes to fruition, it leaves us feeling filthy. We feel dirty, Bible's word for that is we feel defiled. And that's part of the purpose of which Jesus came was to free us from sin, which leaves us trapped in its... Sort of parameters, sort of sort of its rule book, following its guidelines, and which leads to defilement. And so Jesus not only cleanses from our sin, but because the sin has basically been purged away, cleansed, we also find our souls cleansed. And people who have who have their souls cleansed and have been set free as being slaves to something, the natural result is incredible joy. That's what happens. As a result of that, now you become full of love towards other people. So Paul says, it's like you guys are running this race. You're running this race, and you're doing good. But what happened was someone came on the track and started misleading you. So in other words, you can be looking at your life and being like, well, we follow the leader. We did exactly what we were told. We follow the leader. But Paul's like, yeah, but the problem is the leaders weren't following after Jesus. They were sort of establishing their own kingdom, So even though you might have been following up the leader, because some of us might be like, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do in the church? It's sort of follow suit, follow the leader, do what the leader says and does. The answer to that is yes and no. I mean, it's yes if the leaders are following Jesus. It's no if the leaders aren't following Jesus, right? So the point of the matter is it's not just simply uh, that, that you just do or parrot what leaders do, you make sure that leaders are godly leaders. They're following Jesus. They're making choices and decisions that are after Jesus. And then you follow them as they follow Jesus. And so the point that Paul's like is that what had happened was, and, and again, Paul is not kind of tapping into this notion of kind of postmodernism, like we can make decisions on our own. We don't need some leader to help us. Paul, that's not what Paul's doing at all. In fact, Paul, quite the opposite. He's like, look, I, I was once your leader. And you're not following me anymore. Paul's like, but I'm really hopeful that one day you will be brought back to the concepts and the truths and the ideas that I communicated to you. In other words, I'm hopeful that you will follow me. But Paul's point is not for them to follow him because Paul's important. Paul's like, I want you to follow me because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to communicate to you is the gospel. I really want you to to follow the gospel. I want you to go back to following Jesus. So what had happened was, as these guys were running the race, someone came onto the track, got their attention, and diverted them, and so now they're falling off the track, or they're in danger of running off of the path that God has for them. Maybe that's where some of you guys are today. Maybe that's where some of you started out. You started out in Jesus. You started out in your relationship with God vertically, and you're full of joy. Your relationship with other people horizontally was full of uh, joy and happiness, and there was love, there's forgiveness. All of these good traits and characteristic, uh, you know, mentalities and ideas were part of your life. But somewhere along the line, something came in, something changed that, something shifted course, something caused you to go off track and so therefore you've lost joy with God and you've lost right relationship with other people. In a lot of ways, those are the telltale signs that you can look at. If you can look at your life and say, I have a horrible relationship with everybody, there's nobody I get along with and I never feel really close to God. It's probably a good picture of the fact of what happened to you is that you maybe started off running the race, somewhere along the line, someone came in, persuaded you to get off. This is why at the end of the day, it really does matter what you feast on, what you read, what you listen to, what you watch, the company you keep. Now the reality is there's, there's a fine line that can go on here, and I can spend an entire messages talking about this, but the fundamentalist mentality that says abandon all things that aren't part of our little group, our little sect, our little tribe." That sort of becomes exclusive is, is not the right way, but there's a nugget of truth in there that needs to be understood. And the nugget of truth is that it does matter what you listen to, it really does matter what your mind is reading, what your eyes are investing in, what your heart is being given out to. Because what will happen, what can happen, like Paul says in Corinthians, bad company actually does corrupt good morals. The gospel, again, is not about being moral. But when the gospel affects you, it does change you vertically, horizontally. You become like Jesus. You become like Jesus. However, making bad choices, feasting on things that aren't good can sometimes lead, mislead you, redirect you from off of the track. And Paul's writing to these guys saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. Something has come in. Something has hindered you from obeying the truth. The second thing that we see is he jumps from the race into the courtroom and he uses this phrase where he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This word persuasion is kind of a word that's also used kind of in courtrooms, the idea of supplying elements of truth uh, to gather the minds of those that are involved in this sort of uh, dialogue, this conversation, so that they would be convinced. And so what he's saying is that the direction that you guys are heading down has nothing to do with what God called you. you. You guys are going in a path That really is actually outside of the path that God has called you to. What did he call them to? He's called them freedom. Paul just finished talking about that earlier in the chapter. For freedom's sake, that Christ set you free. He set you to be free. And again, lest you think that freedom means doing whatever it is that you want, Paul's going to bring you back and say, no, no, freedom is not doing whatever it is you want. Freedom is doing what God wants. You're free now to do what God wants. What God wants will actually lead to deep joy, will actually lead to life between you and God, and will also actually lead to healing within relationships, between spouses that aren't so hot, between family members that aren't really working too great, or between roommates that are fractured or broken. It leads to healing in those elements. So what Paul's saying is that the path that you're going down is actually leading to... where you guys are biting each other. Take a look at what he goes on to say a little bit further. I think it's around verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve and love one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15 says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out. So the point of the matter is that Paul is saying, he says, for if you bite and devour, actually can be translated, since you're biting and devouring, So Paul's whole point is that whatever happened, you guys started out running this race strong. You loved Jesus. You loved one another. This person came in. These people came in. They redirected you. They told you a bunch of truths that you thought were truths, higher understanding, whatever the case is, or deeper spirituality, and you guys bought it. Rather than following the words that I shared with you, rather than keeping Jesus central, you guys started going off into a whole other realm And what had happened was, Paul says, now you guys look at yourself. You started out loving each other. You started out loving God. Started out having great joy in God. But now you're not feeling joy in God. You feel distant from God. You're not loving one another. Now you're biting and devouring one another. Your church looks like a lot of other churches that end up going this particular direction. Maybe some of you have come from that church. You've come from a place where there is biting and devouring. That's like how you would describe it or define it. What's church like? Everybody bites and devours each other. Really? I don't want to join that church. Nobody wants to join that church. People are running from that church. The problem is, is it's not so much that church or that environment. The problem is, are the hearts of the people that are within that situation. What all ultimately ends up happening is that rather than Jesus being central in all things, people end up sort of making alternative things central. Secondary matters Central. Even secondary doctrinal matters get elevated to the place of primary doctrinal matters. These become the ultimate things. I'll give you an example. Sometimes, if you've ever like, looked at church history, one of the things I love to do, I love reading church history, one of the things I've noticed is that every time there's ever been some sort of like re- uh, renewal or religious revival or something has happened within this uh, nation or even beyond, and what ends up taking place is, you know, you've got a group of generation or generation of people that are in love with God. Uh, radical things happen. A lot of times that things that take place when there's some sort of renewal or revival. People's hearts are turned on to God. People confess their sin. Everyone's loving each other. They're serving one another. They're making great sacrifices one another. A lot of times, again, it's something that accompanies a lot of revivals is music. People start writing new songs, brand new songs, songs that have never been sung in the church before. It's just natural, just happens. But usually what ends up happening is by 25, 30, sometimes 45 years down the road, the generation that started that movement is no longer there. They're kind of older now. And what ends up happening is when people get older, they want to become a little bit more settled in their way. They begin to sort of make compromises and say, really what we want is we want comfort. We don't want the good old days where things were chaotic. We want comfort where we're in control. We can actually control Who's in, who's out, who's part of the group, who's not. What ends up happening is now groups become defined by what makes them unique or their distinctives or things that sort of are etched out as boundary markers. They say, this is what makes us and our group unique. We're a group of people that are, you know, about Jesus and you must believe the rapture. We're about Jesus and you must basically speak in tongues. We believe in Jesus and you must, you know, Drive a pink Cadillac. I don't, I don't know. It's weird stuff. I mean, it's, it couldn't be any weirder than the people in the first century were like, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to be circumcised. All right? The point of the matter is, religious type boundary markers sometimes can be really silly. But what ends up happening is these things ultimately become the primary matters of the church that define the church. Inevitably, Jesus gets degraded down to the footnote or to the margin okay where's Jesus he's in the footnote why is Jesus in the footnote because we need lots of writing on the rapture well why is Jesus in the margin because everything is about whether or not you speak in tongues well why did Jesus get bumped off the page because it's all about our tradition why how'd that happen well I don't like that tradition well then you can leave our church that sounds like a church split That's exactly what's going to happen. When you leave, we'll bite and devour you. That's what Paul's saying. You started out well. You loved Jesus. Consequently, you loved each other. You had great joy. But what had happened was religion soon came in, took the place of Jesus. Jesus got pushed out of his own door, out of his own church. This is why this very ironic picture takes place in Revelation, where Jesus is actually on the outside of the church, knocking. Can I come to church? I'd love to hang out with you guys. Anybody home? Anybody there? They won't open the door. Jesus can't even come to his own church. That's a bad place to be. You don't want to make a church like that. The point that I would make is this. Paul is really concerned. Because what's happening with these people is that they are being persuaded by these people. To follow after something that doesn't keep Jesus central in all things. And as a result of that, they're losing their joy with God. And they're losing their love for one another. They're biting and devouring each other. And they're losing their sense of stability with God. That's what happens in churches like that. Paul's deep concern. And again, in the context, these people are not... Leaving Jesus to go back into drug addiction. They're not leaving Jesus to go back into like being a bunch of alcoholics. Leaving Jesus to go back into paganism. Or leaving Jesus to go back into whatever type of sins that they were in before. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. The very ironic thing is that they're actually leaving Jesus to go back to something that's deeply religious and traditional. And actually rooted in the Bible. So this actually should be a warning for us as Christians. That the danger for us as Christians may be sins that can beset us. That's absolutely true. The book of Hebrews says, be careful to lay aside every weight and every sin that can easily beset you. We've got to be aware and alert of that. But at the end of the day, one of the greatest dangers that can also come in and take over us is that when Jesus becomes shoved off little bit by little bit into the margin into the side note and then we begin to get all into we become a church that's defined about all sorts of other things other than Jesus I think about churches right now some churches in my mind that can easily be this and again I'm not trying to in any way make any sort of judgment I'm just simply trying to make observations some churches are in my opinion defined by where they stand with Israel we stand where that stands with Israel that's, that's great Israel's awesome I mean, Israel as a nation's awesome. I've been there. I love the place. Jewish people. I I know God loves them. They're great people. But when you become a church, it's like that's that's like Jesus doesn't even get kind of airspace anymore. It's just all about the nation of Israel, or some churches are like, or people or Christians all about apologetics. All I care about is what's wrong in the church. I'll write about it, talk about it, preach about it, yell about it. But where's Jesus? We're all about the gifts of the Spirit, who's speaking in tongues, where the Spirit's moving, all these other types of things that somehow Jesus gets sort of pushed to the side. Where's Jesus? The thing is, is that none of these things are really bad in and of themselves. But they have to have a place within the substructure in which Jesus is authoritatively the head over them all. Otherwise, they become points of division and contention within the church. Whereas when Jesus is there, he becomes our joy and he becomes this great unifying factor amongst all of us whereby we can actually say, you know what? We may not agree on all sorts of points of doctrine and secondary matters, but you know what? At the end of the day, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. Let's worship Jesus together. He's a good God. Problem is, is like what Paul was saying, you guys are wandering away and thus you guys are becoming exclusive, you're biting and devouring each other and it's simply because you guys are wandering back into some sort of religious moralism. Not drug use, not paganism, religious moralism. So the first thing he talks about, this illustration of the races. Secondly, he goes to the courtroom. Third, he goes to the kitchen. Paul, because he's a Jew, because he understands the Torah, he actually draws from an Old Testament motif in this picture of the Passover. And during the time of the Passover, the Jews were actually uh, required to rid their house of all forms of leaven or yeast. And the idea behind that and they were to make unleavened bread, and the idea behind that was because leaven sort of had this this picture, this motif, this idea of of sin. It was kind of related to sin, because uh, the way leaven works, or the way that yeast works, is it basically puffs up by corrosion. It's kind of a good picture of sin, because that's kind of what happens, where as it it breaks down, as it ferments, um, it it basically puffs up, and it permeates the entire loaf. so it doesn't take a whole lot of leaven Uh, to permeate the entire loaf, to allow it to rise, in the same way Paul's going to say, it doesn't take a lot of bad theology, bad ideas, bad knowledge of God to actually at some point begin to affect or infect all of your life. This is why at the end of the day, good theology does matter. It really does matter. I say this often, that our orthopraxy, meaning our proper practice, has to do with our orthodoxy, meaning our proper understanding of the scripture. So it does matter how we understand understand the scripture. It does matter how we read our Bibles. It's not enough to just be like, I read my Bible. I read my Bible. Well, that's great, but where's your Bible leading you to? It's leading me to argue with everybody about all these secondary points. Well, unfortunately, you're just like the Pharisee then, because that's exactly where they went to. But if your Bible actually leads you to Jesus, and that humbles you, and you confess sin... And you find yourself being humbled by God because you've confessed sin before God. You also find joy with God. And as a result of finding joy with God because you realize you're a sinner that's been forgiven by God, now this leads to a horizontal relationship with other people that you actually love and forgive them. So yeah, it doesn't matter how you read your Bible. It totally matters how you read your Bible. So our orthopraxy is affected by orthodoxy. So that's why he now moves to this whole concept of leaven. He says, watch out, be careful. Little tiny areas of compromise can actually lead to big, major life brokenness. you got to know this. Because some of you guys might look at your life, and there's little areas where you're compromising. You know where those are. I mean, I I can go down a list of a bunch of them not, but, you you know, you guys can think of what those compromises are in your life. And the reality is, you got to think of what those things are in your life and ask, where am I at with those things? How am I giving into those things. It's those little compromises, those little tiny compromises that are equivalent to this notion of leaven. What are the various false theological ideas that I'm allowing into my mind to just entertain these things that are actually causing distrust for God or sort of bringing God down to your level rather than allowing God to show you who he is for who he is as this great, almighty, powerful God but is also incredibly loving It doesn't matter how we think, how we understand God, how we approach the scriptures. So he moves from the race to the courtroom to the kitchen. Now he moves to the crucifixion. And Now, the reality of the crucifixion back in those days was deeply offensive. Um, Oftentimes, they would actually set up and erect a cross on the side of the road. Sometimes, you know, we had these old pictures of, you know, this cross being up on this big, massive hill. Um, Most scholarship would support the idea that most crosses were actually uh, placed on roads, and usually at sort of the, um, the intersection of two major roads. And it would have been right outside the city gate of Jerusalem. In this particular setting, people that would be crucified, it was deeply offensive. I mean, you wouldn't like take your kid for a daily walk and be like, oh, check it out, Johnny, look at that guy. His eye's hanging out of his skull. Look at the birds eating it. That's not that horrible. Like, like, it's deeply offensive. Like, it's deeply offensive. Oh, that dog's chewing on his bone. Horrible. You know, it was horrible to see this type of thing. All right, for anybody, anybody, and Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. There are hundreds, thousands of people crucified for a century. It was deeply offensive to all people. But in this particular case, Paul's not just talking about any arbitrary crucifixion. He's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. So here's what Paul says. He says, but if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? In the case of the offense of the cross... Uh, it says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul makes mention of if he's still preaching crucif- or circumcision. What does that mean? A lot of scholars kind of debate as to what that means. Here's what I think Paul's actually saying. Um, hypothetically, here's, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting. I think... Probably what was going on because we we don't know this type of stuff for sure. This is my my best guess. Is I think probably what was going on in this church is that these people were coming in from the outside, coming into the Christians that were living there in the region of Galatia, uh, in the churches that Paul had planted, and they're coming into them saying, you know what? Paul didn't share with you everything that you're supposed to be doing for God. Um, and they're like, well, what else should we be doing? Um, they're like, you should be circumcised. What circumcision? And you know, explain it, the whole the whole deal. And in their minds, they're like okay, wow, um, ah, yeah, Paul never told us that, um, when do we get started? Like, right now, I just happen to have my knife on me, and you know, that was kind of like the way church services were for, at some period of time, you're like, I'm happy here to circumcise you, I'm here to serve you, and love you, and pray for you, and by the way, I'll circumcise you, and it's like, it's kind of a weird deal, but, but that's what was going on, so there's a lot of confusion going on in people's minds, and people are sort of tripping out as to what what all this meant, what had happened. And, and so in these guys' mind that are being circumcised, they're like, wait a minute, man, Paul never told us about circumcision. So here's what I think they were saying. They were saying stuff like this. Well, Paul actually believes in circumcision, because Paul's a Jew, he's a rabbi, believes in circumcision, believes all uh, non-Jews need to be circumcised in order to get into the Christian faith. Problem is that Paul's also a little bit chicken. Like, Paul doesn't, Paul's a man pleaser. He doesn't want people to kind of get bummed out. So it's like, you know, when Paul came to church, when he planted the church, that was kind of like that, that awkward thing that Paul just didn't really want to talk about. So Paul didn't want to be like, does anybody want to accept Jesus? Does anybody want to be circumcised? You know, like, Paul didn't want to do that because Paul was trying to save face. Paul was deeply concerned about his uh, his personality, of, of of the way that you thought about him. So Paul try to hold back from you the deeper Christian life, deeper Christian experience, because he cares more about himself than he is about you. So here's Paul's argument back to that. He's like, but if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? So Paul's whole point is that, look, that can't be true. Because it just doesn't line up with the reality. I'm still being persecuted. People are still talking smack about me. People are still writing blogs about me. People are still gossiping about me. People are still saying nasty things about me, sending nasty letters to me. At the end of the day, I'm still being oppressed by these religious leaders and by those who follow these leaders. So if that's the case, if I'm still preaching circumcision, it doesn't make any sense with the whole, with the whole argument that's going on. Then Paul goes on, he talks about the offense of the cross. The word fence, literally in the Greek, is scandalon. We get the English word scandal from. What Paul's basically saying is that the cross actually is deeply scandalous. It's deeply scandalous. It's something that just offends us. It's something that when we look at it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And this is one of the beautiful realities of what salvation is all about, is that when Jesus changes us, he changes our fundamental understanding as to what salvation is all about. So that even though at one point salvation through the cross seemed strange, foreign, and distant, what salvation is, is that God actually turns our hearts on. We see things differently. When Paul uses the concept of the offense of the cross, I think it's sort of his shorthand way of saying uh, the offense of God's redemptive plan. I think that's Basically, sort of a shorthand way of saying that. What, what that means is Jesus coming into the world, living a perfect life. You should have lived. Uh, dying the death, you should have died. Paying the price, you should have paid. Rising again from the dead, conquering death. It's a little bit wordy. So Paul just sort of shrunk it down a little bit to say the cross, the cross, the message of the cross, the plan of redemptive history culminated in the cross. Paul's saying it's deeply offensive. This is the reality you need to know. We live in a world in which the cross just does not make a lot of sense. It just doesn't make a lot of sense that a God would send his son into this world and die for people that have ill-treated him and that God who sent his son into this world who, to save those who ill-treated him actually loves them, brings them, welcomes them into his family. And accepts nothing from them in return. It's as deeply offensive. It doesn't make a lot of sense. There's at least three different ways in which the cross is deeply offensive to us as humans. The first way is the cross actually offends us in our wisdom. Meaning what we know, what we understand. Paul actually wrote about this to a group of people living in a region called Corinth. And it was sort of in the center of the, it was where the west Kind of met the East, and it was a place where a lot of Greek philosophy had gone on. So the Greeks in the city knew a lot about wisdom. They were very familiar with the concept of wisdom, of philosophy. And so the first thing that we see is that the cross actually fends us in our wisdom. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's kind of an interesting thing. I'll give you a little bit of a story here. I, there's a time right when I first became a Christian, I was around 15 years old, I wasn't quite, quite 16. Um, I, I know that because I, I wasn't driving yet, and I was actually working at Marie Counters. Um, I was a cook. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I remember cooking for this guy who was a waiter, and he seemed so old. I mean, he might have been like 21 years old. Um, and I think he, like, and I actually seemed really smart. All right. I grew up in Huntington Beach. He went to Golden West College. You guys know what Golden West College is? Like, two of you do. All right. And I remember being like, this guy's so dang smart. He's so much older than me. And, uh, and now I look at him like, dude, the, dude what the Golden West College? You gotta be, and he's 21 years old. But, at, you know, when you're 15, talking to this guy who's, you know, 21, golden to golden west, and you're still in high school, you're barely making it through high school, you know, I, I remember talking to this guy and be like, this guy's so dang smart. I gotta figure out some sort of way to win him to Jesus. I remember talking with him, and I'd make his, like, you know, patty melt, give it to him. I'm like, Mike, here's your ma-, patty mail. And he's like, we'd come back, and we'd get in these, like, debates and stuff talking about Jesus. I remember one night, this guy was like, hardcore atheist. I remember one night just being so bummed and be like, man, I wish this guy knew Jesus. I went home that night. I was just not even a Christian for more than five months. I remember sitting down on my floor um, and I just opened my Bible, and I was just, you know, when you work at a restaurant, and you come home, you smell like a hamburger, and it just, you stink, you like emanate this nasty smell, I just remember sitting down on my floor, and it's this nasty smell, but like, I gotta I got pray, man, I, got, I really gotta read my Bible, I really just gotta ask God how to deal with this guy, because I was really troubled, and uh, really troubled over his soul, and I, I just remember praying, I'm like, Lord, I just need a word from you, Honestly, it was one of the only times, maybe probably the only time in my entire life, I feel like God ever just, I don't know if it was verbally, but it was a, it was a, it was a voice I heard from God. It was, you know, again, just something that God spoke to me. It was basically, read uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Just, that just popped in my head. I'd never read 1 Corinthians. I didn't even know what it was. I'd actually look it up in the table of contents. Like, 1 Corinthians, I don't know what that is. And, and I just, I opened my Bible, and there it was. I started reading, and here's what it said. For the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the reality is when I first read that, I was like, oh my gosh. That's exactly exactly what's going on here. This guy just thinks it's silly. Every time I talk to him about Jesus, he just thinks it's absolutely foolishness. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why this guy would not see Jesus as not just useful but beautiful. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is when people find God not just useful to their lives, Sort of an addition, right? Just sort of a semi upgrade, making your life a little bit better. But salvation, Christianity is about not just finding God useful, but actually finding God beautiful, whereby He's your all in all. I just could not understand why this guy couldn't see Jesus as beautiful. We just couldn't understand how great salvation was. So I read that and was just blown away by that. But here's what Paul's saying He says, To the those that are perishing, they just don't get it. It's foolishness to them. He says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What God's basically saying is there in the world is this idea of wisdom, smarts, understanding. But then God's basically saying there's man's wisdom, which may be really high. The intelligence of mankind may be very high and elevated. But God's wisdom is way beyond that. God's wisdom makes man's wisdom... Look like a kindergarten reading a pop-up book. God's wisdom is way beyond our understanding. And so the point that he's trying to say is that there is this wisdom in this world and it is not congruent with the wisdom of God. And so therefore when people that are not Christians, don't under, when they try to understand, when they try to filter through and figure out God's wisdom, God's way of doing stuff, God's plan of salvation, God's redemptive narrative plan for the world, just offends the wisdom of mankind this doesn't make a lot of sense it seems absolutely silly verse 26 he goes on to say actually 25 he says for the foolishness of god is actually wiser than men he says for consider your calling brothers not many of you are wise according to worldly standards not many of you are powerful not many of you are of noble birth for god chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise so that no human being might boast in the presence of god the reality is, is that, you know, this is like a huge verse for me because it's like I take a lot of hope and joy. that God, God can actually choose someone like me? All right? He can choose people like you. I mean, w- w- the reality is we're, we're all fools. We're all foolish in our own lives. And yet God chooses the foolish things of this world to absolutely baffle the wise. So that when people are looking at you, you're like, wow, how is it that God can just use someone like that? They're a loser. It's like, well, because God's a big God. I mean, God does a lot of great things. He's a big guy. He's way beyond us. And God just blesses and loves indiscriminately. God loves to come alongside people that are just the worthless of the bunch and say, I want to honor and love and pour out blessing upon blessing upon them. So when all the world looks at them and says, how'd that happen to them? that The only answer can be it's God. And his whole point is that no one would boast in their own abilities. This is one of the reasons why intelligence oftentimes is not necessarily congruent with God. It doesn't mean that you can't be intelligent and be a Christian. It just means that oftentimes people that are intelligent end up relying upon their intelligence rather than relying upon God. It becomes an idol. And so the cross becomes deeply offensive to us. It offends our wisdom. The second thing, the cross actually offends our understanding of merit. What I mean by this is that in this world, in the way which we live in this world, we have this whole economy based upon what I do, how hard I work, what I'm worth, my entitlements, what I deserve, and we kind of work within this realm. So in other words, if you were to do something for me and we made some sort of agreement, you're like, I will work for so many hours and I will do this for this particular thing and whatever, and we have sort of this agreement that kind of works like this, and we can look at things based, be, being fair or not fair based upon that. And often as we carry that over in our relationship with God, we're like, God, if I do this for you, if I work this hard for you, if I donate this money for you, if I take care of this cause for you, then will you accept me? Will you take me in? Will you love me? Will you affirm me? And the problem is that oftentimes we falsely assume, we falsely assume that God actually wants something that we have to offer I mean, we could be like, God, God, please accept me, please love me. I got A's on all my tests. God's like, I formed the nebula. Are you kidding me? You think I'm impressed by your test scores? Are you kidding me? Are you think I'm impressed by the car you drive? I mean, I ride upon clouds. And I tell the lightning where it's to go. I say when the thunder's to clap. I'm not impressed by your wheels. I'm not impressed by what you drive. I'm not impressed by your house. I'm not impressed by your clothing. We're like, God, I'm creative though. I'm really good at making music and making art. God's like, do you know that every human being that has ever lived, that will ever live, had a unique fingerprint never to be replicated? You want to talk to me about art? (laughs) Uniqueness? God's not impressed. And so when we try to approach God on the basis of merit, like, God, look what I did. Will you accept me? God, look who I am. Look at my nobility. Look at my lineage. Look at who the family line I came from. Look at how much money I have. We think that God's impressed by that. And the whole point of the cross is he's not impressed. In fact, quite to the opposite. When we look at those things and say, God, God, Look at me on the basis of what I have. He actually says I'm offended by that. Be like walking up to a guy like Donald Trump who owns lots of Manhattan. He's like, I want to give you my cardboard box. I live in it. It's wonderful. It actually doubles for and I I will work for food sign. It's functioned great for me. I think you might be blessed by it. He'd be pretty bummed. He'd be like, you're fired. You're right. And the point of the matter is, is that we, we think somehow God's impressed by this, but He's not impressed. This is why merit, when we approach God on the basis of our merits, and God says, "I'm not impressed by that. I am impressed by Jesus. Deeply impressed by Jesus. But the gospel says, lay aside what you deserve. Lay aside your entitlements and cling to the Son. Look to the son. Look to Jesus. But that's deeply offensive to some who live their whole life trying to carve out a name for themselves. Try to live their whole life to put their stamp, their individual stamp of uniqueness on whatever it is they do. And God looks at it and says, it's done. Your righteousness is like a filthy rag. I've said this before in the past. The literal translation, the literal concept that's being carried on in Isaiah, that chapter filthy rags, is, is, is a used menstrual cloth. A used menstrual cloth. God says, that's how I view your righteousness. Can you imagine walking up to somebody of great nobility giving them your used menstrual cloth and say, it's a gift that I want to give to you. It's the best I have. That's so offensive. God says, but what I find pleasing is my son. And what I find pleasing is you trusting in my son. So idea of merit is deeply offensive. That's why the cross is offensive in a lot of ways. The cross also offends, thirdly, our human understanding of classification and distinction. I'm going to wrap it up real quick. And the idea is this, is that a lot of us live our whole life trying to carve out our own unique identity or trying to carve out our life to live within our own unique groups or tribes or people, races, religions, whatever. I'll give you an example. I've done a lot of traveling. It's kind of funny, man. Some of the people that are like all about, you know, the uh, first class, it's like they're kings, all right? I mean, it's so funny to me. I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm like a coach driver, I'm a flyer, you know. It's, I'm, I'm cool with coach, but I, I'm, I'm stoked. And if I ever got an upgrade, i like, that'd be cool. I'll take it. But the reality is, like, when you're sitting there in an airport and you see people, some, some of them, not all of them, it, it's just like they want to be treated like kings. It's like, we won't hang with you coach peeps because you're, you're nasty, And, you know, we we wear nice clothes, and, you know, we drink martinis, and we're just, we're way better than you guys. Because, you know, we've got our wallets that are really fat. You know, rich people don't usually use big wallets. They use, like, what are those little billfolds? They're like, you know, whip out a billfold. You know, and the reality is, like, people try to spend their whole life trying to carve out these distinctions as to economy, as to personality types, as to Friends, as to social economic scales, and they live their whole life like this. And here's what the cross does: is it completely obliterates all classifications. And so, what you have is the pathway to heaven is you have both Jew walking next to Gentile. You also have nice people walking next to nasty people. You have the moral people walking next to the immoral people. They're all viewed as one. God doesn't look at it and say, look, you know, there's part of the varsity class and there's junior varsity, and some are better Christians than others. God says there are no better Christians than others. There are just sinners who are redeemed, period. Some of those sinners are really nice sinners. They live their whole life living sanitized lives. They don't say bad things, don't do bad things. They're just really, really nice, but they're nice sinners. And then there are really bad sinners. But in the cross, in Jesus and God's plan of salvation, there's no distinctions. There's no boundary lines. And we walk side by side. This is why there is no boasting. This is why a Christianity that tries to set up, reset up these new boundary lines is actually going back and falling into the error of the Galatians again. The cross, Paul's saying, has an offense to it final thing that I want to wrap it up with is this thing that he says, the fifth one, is he moves now to a a bris. And here's what he says. I wish those who unsettled you to emasculate themselves. Some of you are like, what does the Greek actually say? It actually says, I wish they would cut themselves off. All right? Uh, The word in the Greek for circumcision means to cut around. The word for emasculate in the Greek means to literally lop off, cut off. So here's what Paul's saying is that in this bris, this uh, circumcision ceremony, Paul's like, you know what, secretly, what I really hope would happen is that someone would slip. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Someone would slip, and it's, it's all over, all right? It's just, it's all over. And the reality, that's what Paul's trying to say. So either Paul is being crass. I don't think Paul's necessarily being crass, but I do believe Paul's definitely using some section, some idea of humor, sarcasm, Which is one of the reasons why I absolutely love Paul. And I love the fact, because right there, the Bible validates it. Paul can be sarcastic. Then you know what? There's a warrant for it. The point that I'd make is that if God can have grace in a guy like Paul, he can have grace in all of us. But Paul uses a sense of sarcasm. But I think there's another more important way in which Paul is trying to get some sort of truth conveyed. And I think it really boils down to this. What Paul's actually trying to say is that he also is very familiar with the book of Leviticus around chapter 31, something like that, 30. Uh, he talks about how uh, in the book of Moses that those who have become emasculated, those who have had some sort of injury down there on the male part, that they are no longer able to be a part of the assembly of gathered Israel saints. Here's is what I think Paul's saying. Is that these guys that are leading you to form their own little gathering I wish, and they're trying to do so within the boundaries of the law of God, I wish they would actually emasculate themselves so that they would stop misleading you. Guys, at the end of the day, Christianity really is scandalous. It is. It's scandalous. Sometimes people think the scandal lay in the realm of like, well, how can a good God actually create a hell and send people to it? That's justice, The reality is that that's not the real scandal. The real scandal is how could a good God accept anybody who's evil? That's the real scandal. How could a good God actually take any of us that are sinners and welcome us and love us and wash us and cleanse us and redeem us and renew us? So that now we've got joy with God and we've got peace and love towards other people. How can a God like that do that? The reality is, it is scandalous. It does create an offense. And it does remove barrier lines and distinctions and classifications and tribal boundary marks. And it makes us all one in Christ. And really, this is why Paul would say earlier, what matters most above and beyond all other things, as he says this around verse 6, for Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith. In other words... It's not what you do for God that draws you any closer to God and it's not what you've done against God that makes you any farther from God. But what matters is trusting in his son whom he loves. So this is basically Paul's plea to say, lay aside your own meritorious works. Stop trying to do something for God. Start enjoying God. And stop wallowing in your sin because you think your sin is so bad. It is bad, but you have a God that's bigger than your sin, that draws you in through Jesus to get past the sin, ultimately to bring you to the point of adoption whereby God bestows upon you honor and privilege and love. This is the God that we serve. This is why we love Jesus so much. We're going to respond now. I'm going to have the band come on up. We're going to worship. But what I want to do right now is, I want for us to consider, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I want for you to consider, for you to think about, is to think about what Jesus has done for you. To realize that at the end of the day, God did this by sending his son for you, ultimately for your freedom, to bring about your freedom presupposing you're already bound. You're bound by sin. You're bound by something. You're bound by some idea that is actually destructive. God wants to set you free. He's provided the means to set you free. He's provided the way by which to bring you into freedom through his son Jesus. If you're here, you're not a Christian, I would encourage you call upon Jesus ask God to wash you ask God to receive you through his son God will if you're here and you're you are a Christian we're going to respond we'll partake by uh, part, uh, worship by partaking of the communion we have it in the back let's do that as a way of reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us on the cross if you're here and you're married husbands encourage you lead your spouses do it as simply as just saying sweetheart can we go do this we we'll to do this together just pray over them Be like the priest of the household. Be like the priest of the family. Leading your family in a way that's leading them to Jesus. Leading them to the elements that speak of Christ in a sacrifice on your behalf for your sin. Because he loves you. Salvation is free to you. But it costs God everything. It costs God his son. Great suffering. Great pain on your behalf. But love prevails. Jesus rose again from the dead. That's the beauty of the message of the cross. Deeply offensive. But it's through that offense that leads us to actual life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it this way. The first word of the gospel is not come and live, but rather come and die. Die to our feelings of inadequacy. Die to our ideas that keep us separated from God. Die to our sin that keeps us bound die to those things, that will actually separate us from God one day should we die when we die. And to come to God and to be free. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll sing. Confess sin. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We confess to you, God, our need for you. God, we thank you that there's more than enough of you to not only satisfy every one of us in this room, but to wash and cleanse away all of our sins make us right clean before you so God we humble our hearts now before you and we just say that you deserve our praise and our worship because you're a worthy God